Amen. Good morning, Haynes Creek. I hope you are doing well today. Uh, my name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. If it is your first time, I'm just going to say a special welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us, and uh, we would love a chance to reach out and let you know how much we appreciate your visit. So if you let me know that you're here, uh, you can do that one or two ways. You can just text the word welcome to the number you see on the screens. That's all you got to do. Just text welcome to that number, or if you prefer, we have our welcome cards in the back on this table and outside next to the coffee. You just fill out one of those cards, leave it where you found it, and again, that gives me a chance to reach out and say thank you so much for your visit. So if you do that, I would really appreciate that. And uh, you find us going verse by verse through the book of Acts. So we started this all the way at the end of January, uh, and now here at the beginning of June, uh, we have finished off six chapters. That's awesome, right? There's only 22 more to go, right? So who knows when we'll be done with Acts, but we'll get there eventually. Today, though, we're going to take a good chunk of chapter seven. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts Chapter 7, we're going to look at the, uh, the first 53 verses of chapter 7. So we're going 1 to 53, and I know what you're thinking. We're going to be here till 3 o'clock. I promise I'll get you out of here by 2 o'clock, all right? Don't worry about it. Uh, but as you're turning, there's something, I just want to give you a recap as to where we've been, what's going on up to this point in Acts. And uh, a fun church calendar note, today is the Sunday that is celebrated as Pentecost Sunday. So we uh, went through this back at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, if you remember walking through that, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so this is the day on the church calendar in 2022 that is marked as Pentecost Sunday. So cool note there. Uh, We should be more familiar with that uh, than hopefully we were before our study through Acts. Uh, But again, as you're turning to Acts chapter 7, let me just give you a quick overview uh, of Acts chapter 6. So in Acts chapter 6, we saw that there was an internal issue within the church, right? There was uh, discrimination going on against a certain group of widows. The the Greek-speaking Hellenist widows uh, were being mistreated, were, were not being cared for to the same level as uh, the Hebrew widows. So there was some ethnic discrimination going on in the early church, and then that issue got brought up to the apostles. They quickly dealt with it, and the solution was for the church and the apostles to call seven men to step into this position, a new leadership position, to serve the church in this way to make sure everybody was being properly cared for. And if you remember, one of those seven names was a man named Stephen. And as uh, Willie preached last week, we saw the beginning of the story of Stephen. And Stephen takes center stage in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 6 and through chapter 7. This is where we see Stephen's story. And if you remember last week as Willie led us, we saw the character of Stephen. He was a man of deep faith and trust in God, that he was a man of humility. The Bible speaks of him as being full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, doing signs and wonders. And he was was preaching and teaching in his local synagogue and talking about Jesus. And remember, the Jewish people at this time, they they don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want people talking about Jesus. The council has already warned them repeatedly, stop talking about Jesus. But Stephen didn't do that. So he, he made some enemies for himself in the synagogue, and they tried debating him and, and quickly learned, man, this guy's, this guy's too good. He's too good. He's too smart for us. We can't do it. And now we're mad at him. Like, now, now we don't like the guy. So what did they do? They created these false charges against him, not only on top of speaking about Jesus. That part was true. But, but the charges against him, if you remember in Acts chapter 6, they were uh, saying that, that he was blaspheming God. He was speaking against God. He was speaking against the law and Moses. He was speaking 
against the temple. I mean, these are significant pillars of Jewish worship. Like, these were big deals to them. And they, they held Moses in high regard. They held the law in high regard. They held the temple in high regard. This was a big deal. These were serious charges brought against Stephen. Now, we know that they were lies. They weren't true. But it, it leads to his arrest. And now, at the beginning of chapter 7, he's standing before the council, the Jewish council. And you guys remember these the, the Jewish council, right? We saw this in chapter 4. We saw this in chapter 5, where the, the council, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, it's another word for it, they arrest Peter and John in chapter 4. They arrested all the disciples in chapter 5, and they, they beat them, and they warn them, and they threaten their lives, right? They said, stop talking about Jesus or else. And now we have another person standing before this council. And today we're going to look at, like I said, at chapter 7, 1 through 53. I know it's a lot, but it's all one sermon. It's all Stephen's defense to the council for these charges that were brought against him. And like I said, it's, it's really, it's more of a sermon. And in his sermon, what Stephen's doing is he's giving an overview of Israel's history. So he's giving a high-level overview of Israel's history. And in Stephen's history lesson, he's doing what, what all history lessons aim to do, right? The reason we study history is so that we can learn from the past so that we don't repeat the past, right? We better learn from the past or else we're doomed to repeat it as it's said. So that's what he's doing in his sermon. He, he's making a point that throughout Israel's history, they have a history of being the ones, they have a, they have a pattern of being the ones who have spoken against God. Stephen's not the one doing that. He's pointing out, hey, look, you guys have been doing this your entire history. All right, you're speaking against God. You're speaking against Moses and the law. You're speaking against the temple. So he's showing them and he's reminding them how they have gone astray in the past so that hopefully, by God's grace, they will not repeat that here in the present moment. So that's what Stephen's doing throughout chapter 7. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to read these 53 verses. And then I got a couple of points to give you. But what I want to do with this is we're going to take it in sections, all right? Because there's a lot going on. There's a lot in here, a lot of history. A lot of the Bible is just being summarized by Stephen. So I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So we're going to take it in chunks. I'll explain a little bit what's going on, give you some more background, highlight some things, uh, and we'll work our way slowly through these 53 verses. And then I'll give you two points to consider uh, before we close up shop today. So let's start out, starting in verse 1, it says this. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place." And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Okay, let's pause there. What's going on here? So first off, as we see in verse 1, 
The high priest said, are these things so? So this is the same high priest that, again, we've seen in chapter 4 and chapter 5. This is the same high priest who was presiding over Jesus's trial and crucifixion and death. Same guy. He says, are these things so? Are, are these charges being brought against you correct? Is this true? And this is Stephen's opportunity to give his defense. And again, he gives more of a sermon. I think he knows. I mean, Willie uh, read this at the end. We know that Stephen is murdered at the end of this sermon. I think he kind of sees this coming. So he takes his chance not to defend himself, but to speak truth to the Israelites in this moment, to, to, to hopefully, by God's grace, again, open up their ears to see the truth about Jesus, that so they would walk in repentance and faith and not continue in their sins. So he begins his sermon by, by going all the way back to the beginning of Jewish history. He goes back to the beginning of the nation of Israel, and that all starts with a guy named Abraham. So Abraham, he's living in, in uh, Ur of the Chaldeans. It's modern day, or you know, in, in your Bible, not modern day, but, but in your Bible, it becomes the nation of Babylon. That's where Abraham is living. And you got to remember, like Abraham, not a believer at this point. He's not worshiping the God of the Bible. He's worshiping the false gods of his land, the false gods of his family. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm pulling you out of your land. I want you to leave your land, and I want you to come where I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to start a nation out of you. So again, just try to picture that. Abraham, who doesn't know who this God is, not worshiping this God, here the one true God speaks to him and says, hey, I want you to leave everything, and I want you to move to a place I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to start a nation out of you. And he just goes, okay, sounds good. That just blows my mind, honestly. Like, I could spend a whole sermon on that, but, but that just blows my mind. He's like, okay, yeah, let's do this. And here's the thing. He says, I'm gonna build a nation out of you to bless the entire world. And Abraham, at this point, has no children. He's 75 years old, and he and his wife, Sarah, have no kids. Up to this point, believing they can't have kids, but, but he believed God's promise. So he does. He leaves his land, leaves his family, and he follows God. And Abraham obeyed and trusted. And after 25 years, so it took 25 more years before they had this promised child. 25 more years. The nice age of 99 years old, they finally have their promised child, Isaac. And he's, he's in the land that God promised. But, but he, as Stephen makes a point here, he doesn't own any of the land. He doesn't have an inheritance, not even a foot's length. That, that's his way of saying that he, he didn't own anything. He had no land. Just trusting God's promise. And, and here they have their son. And then his son, Isaac, has Jacob. And Jacob has what Joseph refers to as the 12 patriarchs. Those are the 12 sons of Jacob who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you're wanting, I'll point this out as we go. If you're wanting to know, like, what, what section of the Bible does this cover? This, this covers what Stephen just did in these eight verses. He covers Genesis 12 through 36. So if you want to make note of that, cool, go for it. Again, I'll, I'll point these out as we go. So that's the first eight verses. That's what he covers with Abraham. Let's keep going here. Starting in verse 9, Acts chapter 7, he says, and the patriarchs, again, that, that's Jacob's 12 sons. So 12 sons, the patriarchs, that's who he's referring to. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. 
And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Verse 14, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Okay, let's pause there again. What's going on here? So Stephen now talked about Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And now he turns his attention to one of those sons, and that's Joseph. That Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it says that his brothers were jealous of him. If you remember the story, this, this begins back in Genesis 37. You know that, you know, not, not that it was right, it was, it was very much wrong, but, but Jacob favored Joseph above all of his other sons. So he had a favorite child, and that was Joseph. Liked him, loved him more, cared for him more than the other kids. And, uh, you know, just if, if you've been in that situation, you know that's no fun, right? Like, I'm not trying to, to, to pass over what the brothers did. You don't sell your brother into slavery no matter what's going on, right? You don't do that. But you get why they might be jealous and angry. And I'm sure Joseph wasn't like, you know, the most humble guy. Like, I'm sure he was rubbing his face. And he did a little bit with his brothers. Like, I'm the favorite child. Don't you love that? Like, I'm sure he was, you know, kind of pushing them along. But again, you don't sell your brother into slavery. That's messed up. But that's what they do. They were jealous of him. They were angry. So what they did was they faked his death. And they sold him into slavery, and he eventually makes his way into Egypt. And he makes his way into Egypt, and soon he's falsely accused of a crime that he didn't commit, and he gets put in prison. And he's in prison for seven years for a crime he didn't commit. He was, he was completely innocent, but he was in prison seven years. But eventually what happens is Pharaoh has this dream. Pharaoh has this terrifying dream. He can't make sense of it. And word comes to him that there's this guy in prison who can interpret dreams, and it's Joseph. And Joseph stands before Pharaoh, interprets his dream. Uh, Pharaoh finds favor with Joseph, and then he puts Joseph in command over everything in Egypt. He's, he's put in charge of the, the greatest, most powerful nation at this time in history. He went from being a prisoner to now he's like prime minister over the nation of Egypt. Now, that's wild. And in this dream, in this dream that Pharaoh has, the way Joseph told it, the way God tells it and interprets it for Pharaoh and Joseph is that there's going to be seven years of plenty. There's going to be seven years of, of really good harvest, really good grain. And what you need to do during that seven years is you need to save. Save as much as you can during that seven years because after seven years of plenty, there's going to be seven years of severe famine. And that's exactly what happens. So during that seven years, Joseph leads the charge to save and save and save. And then there's seven years of famine. And during that time, the only place that has food is Egypt, all because they obeyed and trusted God's word here. So they, they're the only ones with food. And eventually, Jacob and his sons and his family and Joseph's family, all the way back in the land of Canaan, they run out of food. And the only place to go is Egypt. And as Stephen tells us, on their first visit, they go and they stand before Joseph, their own brother, don't recognize them at all. And Joseph doesn't say anything. I kind of love that part in scripture where he's just like, oh yeah, here you go. Uh-huh. What, what, what's up now? Y'all sold me in slavery? I'm not going to say a word. And here they are bowing down before their brother asking for food. He gives them food. They come back again to get more food. And on their second visit, Joseph lets them know who he is. And they have this beautiful moment of forgiveness and reconciliation and it's awesome, and Pharaoh gives favor to Joseph and his family. Eventually, they bring everybody down. Now they're up to 75 people. So his entire family, 75, right? It started with Abraham, Sarah, 
and Isaac. And now we're up to 75 people. So this covers Genesis 37 through the end of Genesis chapter 50. So let's keep going here. Let's pick it back up. Verse 17. Verse 17, he says this, but as the, but as the time of promise drew near, so just pause real quick, that, that promise that Stephen references here is the promise that we read in those first eight verses, that, that God said, hey, you're going to be enslaved by another nation. You're going to be sojourners in another nation. You're going to be enslaved by them, but I'm going to free you, and I'm going to bring you back to this land. So as that time is drawing near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hands, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, You are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now when he was 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came a voice of the Lord, I am the God, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. All right, let's pause there. So Jacob's family, they're in Egypt, right? They're staying in Egypt. Eventually they pass away, they die, they're sent back, buried in the land of Canaan. But during this time, there's a period of hundreds of years that Joseph covers here. The Israelites grew and grew and grew and eventually become a mighty nation. And during that time, eventually a Pharaoh comes to power that didn't know about Joseph. They didn't know about the favor that the previous Pharaohs had given Joseph and his family. And here he sees this nation growing within his own borders. And what does he do? He he enslaves them. He puts them to work, slave labor. And eventually they they continue to grow. They continue to to get bigger and bigger. So this Pharaoh says, man, I don't want these people growing so much that they take over this place. So so here's what I'm ordering. All Israelites, if you have a son, if you give birth to a son, you have to kill the son on the spot. That's what Joseph's mean by by they were exposing their children. They were basically just leaving them outside to die. But when Moses was born, his mom protected him. God protected him through that. And eventually she, she puts, you know, we know the story. We, he puts, she puts Moses in a basket and pushes him down the Nile, just praying, Lord, protect him. And he does. And eventually he's found by Pharaoh's daughter who adopts him. And he, he gets brought up in the house of Pharaoh. 
And as Stephen reminds us, at one point when he was 40 years old, he decides to go down to visit the Hebrew slaves to see his people. And, and when he sees that, an Egyptian is mistreating one of his Israelite brothers, and he defends him and eventually kills the Egyptian and comes back the next day, sees two Israelites fighting. And he's like, guys, what, what, what are you doing? We're, we're brothers. We've got to stick together. And they're like, dude, what? You just killed the guy. Like, who, who, what are you talking about? Who, who, who are you to come tell us anything, right? Like, you're not down here every day. You don't know what's going on. And Moses, hearing that and knowing, man, it's not going to be able to, or I'm like, I can't keep this secret, right? Like, eventually people are going to find out that I killed another person. He flees. He runs away. Eventually goes into the desert to a land called Midian, where he was a shepherd for 40 years. And after 40 years, so he's at the age of 80, God appears to Moses through the burning bush. And he speaks to Moses and he calls Moses. He says, I'm going to bring you back to Egypt. I'm going to use you to free my people from Egypt. So he calls Moses to, to lead the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, out of slavery and back to the promised land. So this covers the first four chapters of the book of Exodus, Exodus 1 through 4. All right, let's keep going here. Verse 35 says, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent both as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation, in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And as for Moses, as Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, and the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought in it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Okay, so let's, let's rewind and, and, and summarize what's going on here. So Moses is sent back to Egypt, right? He goes back to Egypt, goes before Pharaoh and says, hey, God said, let the people go. Let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh laughs at him and says, no, I'm not doing that. And then what happens? God brings on the 10 plagues of Egypt, right? If you remember that, the 10 plagues. And Pharaoh continues to say, no, 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 until the 10th and final plague, the worst plague, where God, God kills the, the firstborn of the Egyptian household. And finally, Pharaoh releases them. So they leave, they're free, they're set free, right? 
But quickly, Pharaoh changes his mind, and in anger, he pursues the Israelite nation all the way to the Red Sea. And if you remember that story, how, how awesome is this, the, where God, with the people, he, he splits the Red Sea, right? He splits the sea, and they walk across, the entire nation walks across on dry land. And they get to the other side, and Pharaoh and his army are pursuing them, and then God collapses the sea onto Pharaoh's army, defeating them and saving and rescuing his people. So now his people are free, and they, they continue on in the wilderness, making their way to the promise, and they come to Mount Sinai. And Moses is called up by God to the top of Mount Sinai, where, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the law for the people to follow. And he's up there for 40 days, 40 days. But during that time, the Israelites get impatient, right? They get impatient. We see this time and time again with them. They get impatient, and as Stephen quotes them, they say, man, this, this Moses that let us out, we don't know what happened to him. We don't know where he's at. What is he doing up there? I don't know what's going on. He's taking too long. Let's not wait on him anymore. Let's instead worship something else. So with Aaron, they, they make a golden calf. They make it right there on the spot. And once they're done, they start worshiping that. And if you read, this is Exodus chapter 32. When you read this in Exodus, they, they're worshiping this golden calf saying, oh, praise to this one. Uh, praise be to this golden calf who brought us out of Egypt. It's like, y'all, just a few days ago, God brought you out of Egypt, and you walked across the Red Sea on dry land, and now you're like, this golden calf led us out of Egypt. Like, what? What is happening? What's going on? And this starts a pattern of the Israelites constantly rejecting true worship of God and constantly pursuing worship of false gods and false idols. And that's where... Stephen quotes from Amos chapter 5 where he talks about how they've worshipped the God of Molech and all these other false gods. That comes from Amos chapter 5, verses 25 and 27. And on, on Mount Sinai, as we know, God, God gave Moses the law. He comes down and he delivers the law to them. And in that, God calls them to build the tabernacle, right? We see this at the end of Exodus. They build the tabernacle. This is the place where they're going to worship God. This giant tent structure where they're going to worship God in the way that he's called them to and not worship these false idols. And eventually they make their way through the wilderness. Eventually they make their way into the promised land under the, the leadership of Joshua. They're, they're finally in the land, right? They finally get to the land. And then Stephen fast forwards a few hundred years and now we're in the time of David, King David. And this time he, he makes specific reference to David asking God permission to build a temple. No longer do we want to worship you in the tabernacle, like you said. No, we want to build this elaborate, awesome temple for you. And God says, no, I'm not going to let you build it, but I'll let your son build it. I'll let your son Solomon build the temple, and that's what happens. But Stephen reminds his audience, God doesn't dwell in a house made by human hands, does he? He doesn't dwell in a temple. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 66 at the end of that section there. So this covers a big chunk of your Bible. This covers uh, the end uh, or the beginning of uh, the Exodus. So Exodus chapter five through the time of Solomon, which is found in First Kings of your Bible. So uh, we're now pretty far into Israel's history, and, and now we see Stephen start to conclude his sermon. He says this, starting in verse fifty-one. He says, "You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did." So do you? Which the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Verse 53, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
So Stephen is concluding his sermon here by speaking directly to his audience, directly to the council, directly to the crowd that is there. And he calls out their stubbornness and their sin and their rejection of God and Jesus Christ. He makes note that they have done this over and over again throughout their history. They have constantly persecuted and gone against God's word, God's law, God's messengers, the prophets. And now what Stephen is is showing them and telling them is like, y'all, you're about to do this again. You're doing it again right here in this moment. You've done it throughout your history, and now you're about to do it again. So in this sermon, I guess I want to give you two things to consider before we we end today. There's two things that we see in in Stephen's sermon and in this history of Israel. The first one uh, is a history of God fulfilling his plans and promises. And uh, another point is a history of continual rejection and continual grace. Let's talk about that first point. If you're taking notes, it's our first point here. We see in Stephen's sermon a history of God fulfilling his plans and promises. Stephen constantly reminds us in his sermon that, that God would always fulfill his promises, that he will always fulfill his word, that he will always work out his plan. And that's refreshing, right? Because too often we live in moments of broken promises or empty promises or, or people not doing what they say they're going to do, right? Not living up to their word. We see that time and time again. I told you guys a couple weeks ago that we used to have a dog a few years ago. We had a dog. His name was Rudy. Uh, He was 50% beagle, 50% pug, and 100% terrible, awful dog, all right? Uh, He was really sweet with kids, really sweet with people, but man, just a struggle for him to do anything right. Uh, So it it was rough. It was a rough go for Rudy. He passed away five years ago. We cried, all that good stuff. And I said at that moment, never getting a dog again. Nope, not gonna happen. Not gonna get another dog and now fast forward five years, we don't have a dog, that's not what I'm about to tell you. But my kids, my two older ones, Zayden and Livy, uh, they really want a dog. And now they're on me, always want a dog, asking for a dog, wanting a dog. And I thought I was going to have an ally in my wife, Kendra, that we were going to be steadfast and resolute and not wanting a dog. No, no, she's on their side. She's on their side already. So now it's already three against one. Y'all, I'm holding fast. You can pray for perseverance for me. We haven't gotten a dog yet, but I know, I know eventually I'm going to wear it down. Eventually, they're going to win. I know this day is coming. I'm just going to try to hold off as long as I possibly can. Uh, but I think those days are, are, are dwindling in number because now my, my wife has made a new friend in our neighborhood. Uh, one of the ladies in our neighborhood, she has a little dog named Teddy. My wife loves Teddy, loves Teddy. And now she's like talking about Teddy all the time. To my, now my kids are talking. I'm like, y'all don't even know what's going on. Y'all don't even know what you're talking about. But they're obsessed with this dog. Teddy, and he's like, oh, we got to get Teddy. He's so sweet, so kind. He's, he doesn't shed. He doesn't, he's not crazy, not wild, really smart dog, really good dog, like all these really positive things. And now she's talking this up, and now my kids are talking it up. I really think like part of the reason she's befriended this lady is just so she can wear me down with the cuteness of Teddy. That's not true. She, she's making friends all over our neighborhood. But, but part of me thinks that. Part of me thinks that because they're always talking about Teddy. And then the other day, this happened. Uh, Livy and Kendra and, and me were, were, in the, were in the kitchen, and uh, and Livy's talking about Teddy. Dad, when are we going to get Teddy? When are we going to get a dog like Teddy? When are we going to get a dog like Teddy? And my answer always is never, never. We're never getting a dog. Absolutely, stop asking. We're never going to get a dog. And then she goes immediately, she walks out of the room, and she goes and finds Zayden, who is in the living room. And like 30 seconds later, I hear this like really excited scream from Zayden. He's like, yeah, woohoo, yay, yeah, that's awesome. I was like, what, what is going on? 
Zayden, what, are you okay? What's going on over there? He goes, Livy just told me we're getting a dog tomorrow. It's like, girl, why you got to be like that? I said, Livy, tell him the truth. She goes, we're not getting a dog. She thought it was hilarious. And Zayden goes from happy, super excited, to now he's super disappointed and super sad. I was like, I told y'all, we're never getting a dog. Stop asking. I'm not getting a dog. But again, like that's, that's the feeling, like that feeling that Zayden had when he's like, ooh, we're getting this. And then you find out, no, that's not true. Like that's the feeling of a broken promise, of not living up to our word when, when, when we feel let down, right? Like that's what we're used to. But when it comes to God, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He always fulfills his promises and his plans. We can take his word as a guarantee, as 100% true all the time. He will always fulfill his promise. And we, again, we see this throughout their history. This is what Stephen's pointing out. He's, he fulfilled the promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to build you into a nation. Boom, done. I'm going to bring you into the land. Boom, done. Like he fulfills his promise. He protected Joseph. He put Joseph in a place of power so that he could then protect and preserve his family, this, this nation that was about to become a nation of God, right? He protected Moses and used him to rescue Israel from Egypt. Stephen's sermon reminds us that, that God is always at work. He is always working his plan throughout history. In church, it's been the same plan since day one, since the very first verses of our Bible. Since the very beginning of history, it has always been God working towards his plan to create and rescue his people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all been about Jesus. It's always been working towards Jesus. It's all about him. Even in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It all points to him, right? We see the, the beginning of this promise even in Genesis 3. The very first promise of a Savior is given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 after sin comes into the world. God says, hey, I'm going to fix all this. I'm going to correct all this. I'm going to fix everything, and I'm going to bring a Savior. The promise to Abraham is not only that God would create a nation out of him, but, but the promise of Genesis chapter 12 is that I'm going to create a nation out of you so that, that I can bless the world through my people. That happens through Jesus. Moses and the Exodus remind us that God will save and rescue his people. And how does he do that? Jesus. In his sermon, Stephen takes aim at, like I mentioned earlier, three big pillars of Jewish worship. He takes aim at the land, the law, and the temple. See, the Jewish people at this time believed that they were blessed and in good standing before God simply because they lived in the land. And simply because they had the law from Moses. And simply because they had this temple where they could go and worship God. They thought that, that just having those things somehow earned them status before God. That they were good. So these three things were held in high regard. So again, if you remember the charges, the charges that were brought against even speaking against the law and against Moses and against the temple, that's a big deal for Jewish people. That's why it was taken so seriously. And Stephen shows them in his sermon, look, y'all, these things are great but they're not ends in themselves like you're treating it. They're not ends in themselves. They point to something greater and bigger, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I mean, think about the land. The land that Israel was promised, that promise was given to them as a reminder, as a truth to the people that God will bless his people, that he will take care of them, that he will provide for him, and that he will provide a dwelling place for them. That's the point of the land. It's not about a geographical location. 
It doesn't have to be in Israel, right? Like we, we see that with Abraham. Abraham was blessed by God, called by God. Did he have any inheritance in the land? No. Stephen says not even a foothold, right? Like not even a little tiny bit of the land. He didn't have any of that. God blessed Joseph and Jacob and the family and the nation of Israel while they were in Egypt, far from the land. Remember the words of God at the burning bush. What does he tell Moses to do? Take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. Holy ground is wherever God is. It is not a geographical location. It's not about the land. The land is a picture, is a symbol. It's a reminder of God's blessing, God's provision, and God dwelling with his people. And all that is ultimately found in Jesus, right? How do we, how do we have God's blessing? How do we have God's provision? How, how do we dwell with God for all of eternity? It's all through Jesus. The law, the law, the law reminds us of our need for a savior. God gave the law to Israel, not so that they would live it perfectly. God, God's not dumb. He knows that we can't measure up to that. He knows that we can't live it perfectly, The point of the law was to remind Israel, hey, if you're following me, you're living a different life than everybody else around you. And by the way, in order to do that, you need me. You need my help. In order to follow me, you have to trust me, believe in me, and follow my ways. The law was never meant to be lived perfectly. It was always to remind us of our need and our dependency upon God. Now again, who who fulfills the law completely? Who does that perfectly? Jesus. Who's the one that we follow, that we put our faith in? It's Jesus. The law was always pointing to somebody in something far greater than just the law itself. It was pointing to Jesus. The temple. The temple. The temple is not an an end in itself. The temple reminds us that God will be with his people, that he's a close God, that he's not some far-off, distant God, that he's near and he's with his people. God doesn't need a temple to be with us, right? Like, it's not about the temple. It's about what the temple tells us in pictures, that God is with us, that God will always dwell with his people, and that we have the promise that we will spend eternity dwelling in the presence of our God in complete perfection. And again, how does that happen? Through Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Everything we see in Scripture points us to Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 that that everything from Moses, the law, the prophets, everything in your Old Testament points to him. I love the book of Hebrews because it's constantly taking these things that we see in the Old Testament and showing how they're ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And the author of Hebrews, when he's talking about the law and the temple and these sacrifices and the tabernacle and all these things that we see in the Old Testament, he says that they're copies and shadows of what we would really have in Jesus. They're all pointing to him. God has always been working on his plan of redemption and restoration from the very beginning. And he's still working on that plan. And we can trust that eventually God will complete his plan, that there will be a full and final defeat of sin and evil, and we will dwell with our God for all of eternity. So real quick, three things that this reminds us of, this this history of God fulfilling his plans and promises. One, God's word can be trusted. God's word can be trusted. He always fulfills his promises. What we see in scripture, we can take as 100% true. It is a guarantee from God that can actually be trusted. It's not like the guarantees we give to one another. It's not like the the promises that we give to one another that that might be empty, that might be broken one day. No, these these are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So God can be trusted. His word can be trusted. 
The other thing we see is, is everything really is all about Jesus, right? Like, what's the joking answer? Any question in church, the answer is what? Jesus, yes. That's right. That's true. It's true. Everything is all about Jesus. Your Bibles are all about Jesus. Read your Old Testament like a Christian. Look for the ways that it points forward to Jesus, because it all does. It all does. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's, it's a kid's Bible that, that we read to our kids all the time. And the, and the subtitle of the Jesus Storybook Bible is Every Story Whispers His Name. That's so true. That's so true. Every story points to Jesus. Third thing is, is God has a plan for us. God has a plan for us. He's working out his plan for all of history. And he has a plan for you and I. And that plan can be trusted we can trust him, we can follow him, and we can remind ourselves always that his ways are best. All right, so in this sermon, we see a history of God always fulfilling his plan and promises. And the second thing, we'll end here, the second thing is we see a history of continual rejection and continual grace. In Stephen's sermon, we see reminders that God's people have this pattern of rejecting him and rejecting his messengers. One of the fun, funny, I think it's funny. My wife doesn't always think it's funny. But uh, one of the things about our, our youngest, Myla, she's, she's a little over one, is, is she just, whoever's caring for her throughout that day, she just like attaches herself to that person. And then if the other person, the other parent comes home later, like she doesn't want to have anything to do with you. So uh, this, this semester, my wife has been subbing at our son's elementary school. Uh, she's gone all day. Like she usually left before Milo woke up and she didn't get home until during her afternoon nap. So Milo didn't see her till later in the day. And when she woke up from her, like she wants nothing to do with Kendra. Like if Kendra hasn't been home all day, she wants nothing to do with her. She's like swiping at her to get her away, fussing anytime she picks her up. Like I have to be the one holding her because I've been caring for her that day. So she just attaches herself to me. Recently, my mom was watching uh, her during that day and, uh, and she attached herself to my mom. Like she's never said Nana before. That's, that's what my kids call my mom is Nana. But when my mom left that day, she said Nana and then cried when my mom walked out the door. It's like she just attaches herself and then just rejects anybody else around her. And uh, again, that, that's a little funny sometimes, but now my wife is, uh, is going back to work full time in, in, in August. She's gonna be teaching first grade at Brookwood Elementary in Snellville and, and just total God thing how we worked all that out. So we're really excited. It's something we've been praying for and looking for for a while now. Uh, but one of the things in the, in the back of my wife's mind is like, man, Milo's going to hate me now. She's going to hate me. She's going to want nothing to do with me. I'm going to come home, and she's like, I don't even want to see you. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe, maybe the more you do it, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Maybe I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm praying for, right? Uh, that's what I'm hoping for. But she just, it just attaches herself and then rejects everybody. That, you know, that doesn't feel good. Like, nobody likes rejection. Who in here is like, oh, yay, I want to be rejected today. I want to get, get rejected from that job that I've been hoping for, that promotion that I've been wanting. I want to be rejected by my friends and my family. Like, nobody says that, right? Nobody likes being rejected. Now just try to put yourself in, in the mind of, of, of God, who throughout the history of his own people, he has been rejected over and over and over again. And Stephen makes a point of this, right? Like he points out that Joseph's family rejected him, that Moses was rejected, that they ignored and rejected and killed the prophets, that they rejected the law, God's very word, and didn't obey it. They rejected true and right worship in exchange for worshiping false gods and false idols. And now here in Acts chapter 7, they, they've rejected the Messiah, God himself, the Savior. And, he, and they're rejecting his messengers, his witnesses, the apostles, Stephen, the church. 
They're continually rejecting God. Stephen calls them at the end of his sermon, he calls them, excuse me, he calls them stiff-necked. Literally what that means is a perfect translation of the word there. It means that your neck is too stiff that you can't move it, right? Like I'm at that age now where if I sleep wrong, I can't move my neck in the morning, right? Like I didn't know you could hurt yourself sleeping, but apparently that's where I'm at in life. So sometimes I'll wake up and it's like, I slept on this weird and I have to turn like this to see who's right here, right? Like that's the picture being given by these words. And what it means, what it refers to is a stubborn person. Stubborn person, right? Like surely none of us in here are stubborn, but that's what... That's what Stephen's talking about here. A stiff-necked person is a stubborn person. And he says that you're, you're uncircumcised in your heart and your ears. What he means by that is you're acting like the uncircumcised. You're acting not like people of God. You're acting like unfaithful, unrepentant sinners. You're not acting like God's people. Your hearts and your ears are turned away from God. Turned away from God. And he says you always resist the Holy Spirit. They are always resisting God his activity, his message, his truth. They're they're actively opposing it and continually resisting God and the Holy Spirit. Now, look, I think it's easy sometimes for us to read this in Scripture and go, man, those Israelites, those Israelites, man, if I was was in their shoes, there's no way. I mean, they had their whole history, right? Like, they, they walked across on the Red Sea, on dry ground. They had God's history of miracles and God's history of speaking to them through the prophets. Like, of course, if I was in their, their situation, man, I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't be doing that. Like, it's easy for us to just look at them and point fingers. But y'all, how, how often is this us? How often are we stubborn? How often are we unrepentant? How often are we actively opposing God? And look, we resist God through a whole bunch of different ways. Like, like sometimes some of us are just outright disbelief. Like you might, not, you might be here and you might not be a believer. You might have not put your faith in Jesus. You are, through your disbelief, you are rejecting the one true God, the only one who can give you salvation and forgiveness. We resist and we reject God every time we disobey scripture. How often is that? Or we see a clear command in scripture where God's like, hey, Travis, don't do this. And I'm like, you know, that's a good idea, but I've got a better idea and that's not doing anything. Like, I'm gonna go do my own thing, right? Like, how often do we do that? We see clear commands in scripture and we're like, no, nah, I'm good. No, thanks. I'm gonna do my own thing. We disobey scripture. We worship false idols all the time. You're like, Travis, no, I'm not outside worshiping the sun or the moon and the stars at night. What are you talking about? Y'all, we, we worship all the time at the altar of wealth and materialism or the altar of our job or the altar of politics, right? Like y'all want to see a worship service? Go to any political rally out there. You will see a worship service. We worship our comfort. We worship at the altar of other people's approval. I could go on and on of the ways that we reject God and we worship other things. We give our heart and our desires and our lives to anything other than God. We do this all the time. We reject God through just negligent and just indifference towards God, where we're just kind of like, meh, meh, meh. I could take God or leave it, you know, no big deal. Eh, it's all right. It's just, you know, something that I do sometimes. You know, if I don't have anything better going on, then maybe I'll go to church on Sunday. But that's the only time I open my Bible or I think about God during the week. Like, that's just indifference towards God. That's another way of rejecting him. So yeah, the answer, how often is this us? It's all the time, right? All the time, this is how we behave towards God. 
not only does Israel have a history of continual rejection, we have a history of continual rejection. And what is God's response to that? I can tell you what my response would be. You know, if I had somebody constantly rejecting me over and over and over again, guess what? Eventually, you're going to run out of chances. Eventually, it's going to be done. And I'm just going to be like, man, I, I want nothing more to do with you. I'm out. I'm done. It's over. Is that how God responds? No. How does God respond to his people's stubbornness and rejection? It's with grace. It's with grace. He responds with grace. His undeserved favor, his unearned favor, he constantly over and over and over again gives us his grace. We see this again throughout the history. It's not just a history of continual rejection. It's a history of continual grace. Look, Abraham didn't deserve God's promise, didn't deserve God's blessing. He wasn't some amazing, upstanding, righteous person. No, he was just a guy. Just a guy, and by all accounts, worshiping false gods of his time. He didn't deserve God's promise or blessing. Joseph didn't earn God's favor. He didn't deserve God's protection. His brothers, his family didn't deserve God's protection and blessing. They didn't earn it. Moses didn't earn his position of leadership. Israel didn't deserve chance after chance after chance after chance that we see all throughout Scripture. They didn't deserve that. They didn't earn that. And yet, what does God do? God continues to rescue. He continues to give his people, continues to give us second chance after second chance after second chance after second chance. He continues to preserve and protect his people. God's grace never runs out, never runs dry. And what is God doing this whole time? He's constantly working. He keeps working towards his plan of salvation. And now at this point in Acts chapter 7, in this very moment where where his people, these Israelites, have have not just rejected another messenger, another prophet. They've rejected him. They've rejected God himself. They've rejected Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And what's God doing? In this moment, through Stephen's sermon, through his words, through his truth, he's giving his people another chance. He's giving them another chance to respond to him, to repent and come back to him. He continues to give grace. We reject God all the time. All the time. Some of you might be living in a season right now of rejection. And what What is God's response? Grace. Grace. We continue to reject and he continues to give us grace and mercy and forgiveness. He offers us chance after chance after chance and he's right there with arms wide open waiting for us to turn back to him in repentance. So do that. Turn to him in repentance. Christian in the room, if you've put your faith in Jesus, and maybe, maybe you are living in a season of rejection. Maybe you are, you know what you're supposed to be doing, right? You know the right way to live. You know what God has called you to, and you've said no thanks, and you've rejected him, and now you're living in sin. Repent and come back to Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. He's right there ready to forgive us of all of our sins, 
Or maybe it's just you're, you're in a season of indifference where you're just kind of meh about God. I mean, you've been out of church for a while. Or just, you know, grown stale. And you just haven't spent time with the Lord. Maybe you're just in the season where you're like, eh, I don't know, it's fine. I don't know about God. Like, yeah, I guess, whatever. Come back to Jesus. Come back to him. Turn back to him. If you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you are, are currently living in disbelief, the Bible says that we are enemies of God, that we are children of wrath, that we deserve to be held accountable for our sins. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus can take that on. He has taken that on on the cross. And that if we turn to him in faith and trust, he promises to forgive us of all of our sins. He promises to give us grace and mercy and forgiveness. He promises to set us free. He promises us everlasting life. Now, what, uh, who else does that? But where else are you going to find that in this world? You can't. You can keep looking. Go for it. You can keep looking. I promise you, you will not find it here. Nobody and nothing does that for us. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is the one who can save, who can rescue, who can set free, who can give us joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction found only in him. Only he can do that. And all we got to do is turn to him and trust and say, Jesus, I'm done living my life of sin. I'm done living for myself. I'm done chasing after the things of this world. I want to live for you. I'm putting my faith and my trust in you. That's all we got to do. And he promises to do that. Put your faith in him. If you're here, you're not a believer. Let today be the day of your salvation. Turn to him in faith. Give your life to Jesus. Christian in the room, give everything to him. Give them all because he's deserving of it. He's worth it. Put your faith and your trust in him. Follow him. Remember, as we've seen, his ways are always better. His ways are always better than our ways, and he can always be trusted. Church, let us learn from the past. Let us learn not just from Israel's past. Let us learn from our past. Instead of walking in continual rejection, let us walk in continual grace and continual faithfulness to God. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to do what we do every single Sunday. We're going to step into a time of worship and a time of communion. Uh, this is just for the believers in the room. So if you're here and you've put your faith in Jesus, this is a time for us to worship and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. That's what communion is for. So I want to encourage you, believer in the room, spend some time preparing your heart. Maybe you need to spend some time confessing and repenting of some sin. Maybe you need to spend some time just, just celebrating and worshiping and thanking God for his grace and his mercy. And as you're ready, take again uh, all the time that you need. But believer in the room, as you're ready, we have the elements on either side like we do every week. We have the bread and the cup representing Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us on the cross. And as you're ready, you go to the tables, take the elements, you take, you eat, you drink, and let's worship our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for these reminders that we see over and over again in your word, Lord. It sees these moments of grace, Lord, of pointing out our sin, of pointing out our patterns and calling us back to you, Jesus. So I pray these words today would not fall on deaf ears like they did in Stephen's time, Lord. 
Would you open our eyes and our ears to you to hear your word, to hear your truth today? And Lord, would we turn back to you? For those that are walking in a season of rejection, Lord, would you wake them up? Would you let them see? And Lord, would you give them grace to turn back to you? So often in those moments, Satan's gonna come, remind us of how we failed, remind us of how we've messed up, remind us of the guilt and the shame that we feel in those moments, Lord, but that's not from you. And instead, let your word speak louder. Let your word of grace, of no condemnation, let your word of forgiveness and mercy, Lord, let that speak louder and let us turn to you. Jesus, give us strength to walk in obedience to all of your ways, Lord. We ask all of this in your powerful name. Amen.